You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, in Luke chapter 13, Jesus has quite a bit to say concerning uh, salvation, how salvation comes, some of the necessary ingredients about and concerning salvation, who salvation is targeting, some of the byproducts or results, ancillary attached results of salvation or the kingdom of God. And the narrowness of salvation and, as well, a group of people who rejected the salvation uh, that he offered. Now, the text begins in this way, in verse 1. It says that there were some at the present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So this group comes to Jesus. We don't immediately see their motivation for coming to him, but They tell a story to him, and they bring to him a current event, Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, we know from history that Pilate was a brutal man and that he tormented quite often the Jewish people to keep them under the Roman thumb, a a, a way to intimidate uh, the people. And so uh, no other historian records this particular event in the life of Pilate. But we find it here in the Bible. Apparently, there was this moment where some Galileans had come out of Galilee down to Judea, which was Pilate's territory, gone to Jerusalem, to the temple, to sacrifice to God, but that Pilate mingled their blood together with their sacrifices. Uh, We don't know if this means that he had just killed them or if he had killed them and then done something very grotesque in the actual literal mingling together of their blood with their sacrifices, but he behaved in a very hostile way towards them. Their death was gruesome. Jesus answered them in verse 2. He said, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Now we know why they brought this to Jesus' attention. They thought that because these Galileans had died such a horrible death, that they must have been guilty of some kind of sin. Uh, You know, sort of saying, well, I guess there's justice in the world after all kind of thing. You know, it's sort of like a reverse way of saying that. Like, we don't really know what these Galileans were about, but certainly if they died in that way, they must be worse sinners than the rest of the Galileans. And that's why uh, God allowed them to suffer and die in this way. Jesus, though, said, is that what you think? No, I tell you, verse 3, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So they brought to Jesus one current event. And Jesus said, you think that those people are worse sinners than others? No, that's not the case. And then Jesus brought to their attention another current event that they hadn't brought up, but that he brought up and saying, listen, you know, the 18 that the tower in Siloam there in Jerusalem fell upon them. Do you think that they were worse offenders? No, I tell you, Jesus said. And so one of the things for us to, of course, learn from this is to be reminded afresh that catastrophe is not always a result of 
of personal sin. It, of course, can be, but oftentimes it's just the result of sin in general that we live in a fallen world. But Jesus, that would have been one thing if that's all he had said, but he actually went beyond that. And he said something more intense. He said, unless you repent, and he said this twice, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, it's as if Jesus is saying, look, you know, death is the common denominator for all people. You can die by catastrophe. You can die in old age with loved ones around you. But if you die and at your death, you have not yet repented of your sin. You've not yet made peace with God. You've not yet received Christ. If you die in that way, then you will perish. You will all likewise perish. So you see the death of the Galileans or you see the death of these Judeans under the Tower of Siloam and you think that that was a horrible end. No, the person who dies without repenting of their sin, their death is the death that is truly horrible. And so what is it that can make a person's life or, uh, excuse me, their death different? Well, repentance, Jesus said. You know, salvation comes first through repentance. And so one of the things we learn here about salvation is that a necessary ingredient is repentance, that you would agree with God about sin and repent of sin and confess it to him and receive Christ as your Savior. But you will not receive him as your Savior unless you understand that you are guilty before God. Repent of your sin. Now, in verse 6, it goes on and it says that he told this parable. He said, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. So the parable is very simple that Jesus tells. He talks about a man who owned a vineyard. Inside the vineyard, there was a fig tree. Each year he would come to get fruit from the fig tree. He looked forward to it, but for three years he found none. So he goes to his vine dresser and says, hey, that's, you know, some good land. Let's cut down the fig tree. It's not bearing fruit. We can plant something else there. Why should it use up the ground? The ground is valuable. The vine dresser really didn't disagree, but he just said, let's give it one more year. And in this next year, I'll give it the best conditions for success possible. I'll dig a trench around it. I'll put manure on it. I'll give it a good shot at bearing fruit. And if it doesn't, then you can cut it down. Now, I don't want to press this parable from Jesus too far. I don't think that that would be wise. But what it does seem to indicate is that salvation, real, legitimate, true salvation, produces fruit in a believer's life, and that God is looking for that fruit. You remember Jesus when he went to the temple the first time. He cast out the money changers, those that were buying and selling. When he came at the end of his earthly ministry, during the triumphal entry, he rode into Jerusalem. He went into the temple, and Mark tells us that he looked around at all things. The next day, he came back. He 
saw actually a fig tree that he wanted to eat fruit from, but there was no fruit. And so he cursed it from the roots and it withered up and died. And then he went into the temple. Remember the day before he had looked around at all things. What was he looking for? Fruit. He drove out the money changers again, a second time. And he said, it's written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of thieves. He was looking for fruit. He had wanted fruit, but he could not find it. He had looked around at all things, hoping for fruit, but he could not find it. God is looking for fruit in the lives of those who are born again. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6 that we have died with Christ and been raised from the dead with Christ, that we too might walk in newness of life. So it's imperative for the believer to walk with Jesus, to experience a relationship with him so that fruit will come out of our lives, even if all that fruit is for a while is simply just pursuing the Lord, walking with him, experiencing him, and in prayer. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That was the fruit that God was primarily looking for, and everything else flows from there. Now, in verse 10, it says, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Now, this is the final time that Luke records for us Jesus teaching in a synagogue. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed, notice that, not healed, but freed, from your disability. Not that she wasn't healed. She was, but he said, you're freed. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Now, the description of this woman's infirmity is very fascinating because Luke says she had a disabling spirit for 18 years. You have to remember, Luke was not a superstitious man. He was a doctor, a physician. He describes her infirmity as a disabling spirit. In a moment, Jesus is going to say that she had been bound by Satan for 18 years. So it seems that her sickness was not of a physical origin, but was from a demonic origin. Now, that's not the description of all of the sicknesses in the New Testament. In fact, it's not a description of most. This woman's sickness, however, is described in that way. So Jesus, of course, healed this woman. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. This brings such sadness into my heart to see the response of this man. He, for one, just couldn't get over what he had been taught, that healing should not occur on the Sabbath day. He called it work. He said six days in which work ought to be done. This was not work for Jesus. This was setting a woman free, releasing her from her bondage. But this man, uh, he, his heart had been corrupted by legalism. And I don't know how this occurred in his life. Perhaps when he was young, he had a passion for God. But that passion had then been steered by the legalists until it had grown up inside of his own heart. Then the Lord answered the man, You hypocrites, 
Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And, of course, that was something that they had come to the conclusion they were allowed to do. They had a little dilemma on their hands. What do we do with our beasts of burden, our animals? When the Sabbath comes and we have that 24-hour period of time where we're not to work, when the sun goes down on Friday night to the sun going down on Saturday night, uh, what are we to do with our animals who need to drink water? How can we provide for them? And especially when we have a longer Sabbath because of some kind of feast or festival, what do we do during those times? And the rabbis had come to the conclusion that it was okay to untie your animal and lead it to water. Now, Jesus could have made an argument and said, so you guys do a little bit of work on the Sabbath It's okay for me to do a little bit of work on the Sabbath. But instead, he said something else. He said, And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? So Jesus here, he's saying to this man, he's saying, Listen, you loose your donkey or your ox on the Sabbath to lead it away to water. There's someone greater than an ox or a donkey here. It's this woman, a daughter of Abraham. She has been bound not just for less than 24 hours like your animals on the Sabbath, but she's been bound by Satan for 18 years. If you're able to loose your animals to bring water, don't you think I should loose this woman on the Sabbath day after 18 years to bring refreshment uh, into her lives? And as he said these things, verse 17, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done uh, by him. Now, what this helps us with is to, when studying the subject of salvation, it helps us understand the target of salvation, that salvation is designed to save people. So many times believers get into big debates about salvation, the way it works and functions and all of that. And certainly that's a good debate to have because salvation is of the utmost importance. However, let us not lose track of the reality that God made a way for the saving of human souls. And that his target, his affection is not upon the debate, but is upon the soul itself that is lost. He wants to see people come to know him, to receive Christ, to be saved from their sin. And so Jesus here helps us remember the priority, I think, in one sense of salvation and to see that God has set his targets and his sights upon human beings. Now he said, therefore, in verse 18, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now, it seems that both of these parables mean or illustrate the same thing. And not only that, but there are two main schools of thought as to how these parables ought to be interpreted. Uh, One group thinks that both of these parables are positive. You know, you have a mustard seed, it goes into the ground, uh, it grows, it becomes a tree, a great tree, and the birds of the air nest in its branches. That's a good thing. Speaking of the 
uh, advance of the church and the expansive nature of the gospel message. And then with the woman uh, taking the leaven and putting it in three measures of flour until it was all uh, leavened, there's the idea that uh, this is a pervasive work. It reaches into everything. The kingdom of God will get into every uh, nation and tribe and tongue and sector. It's expansive in nature. But then there's another group that, and and it's more the minority, but I tend to feel this way, uh, that think that Jesus was actually giving parables to illustrate a negative idea, that this was a negative declaration. Uh, The reason that I think so is because the birds and the leaven throughout Jesus's parables were evil and negative. You might remember Jesus's first parable when he talked about the sower who sowed the seed of the word of God. And the disciples asked the question, what does this parable mean? Jesus said to them in Mark 4 verse 13, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And in that first parable, if there's any kind of key for what the other parables might mean, we learn in the first parable, amongst other things, that the birds were actually bad, that they were messengers of Satan or Satan himself consuming the seed of God's word that had been cast upon certain people's lives. So you have birds here. You have leaven here as well. Jesus had warned of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and of Herod. In the rest of the New Testament, leaven would be used as a picture of sin. And certainly in the Old Testament, uh, leaven was something that needed to be driven out of homes, especially during times of religious festival before God. So this would be an oddity to see leaven as something that is positive in nature. Not only that, not only are birds and leaven often spoken of in negative, evil kind of ways, but you have odd growth. The mustard seed doesn't grow up to be a bush like would be normal, but into a tree. And the woman has three measures, 60 pounds of flour uh, that she is putting leaven into. So it seems to be unnaturally large. So what would, if that's the interpretation, Jesus be saying to us as his people? It seems that he'd be saying, you know, as the kingdom advances and as the gospel goes forth, as salvation occurs in people's lives, you need to expect that there will be evil and odd things that attempt to attach themselves to the kingdom of God. And uh, so whether it's hypocrisy or strange doctrines or false motives or uh, odd practices, things that you cannot find inside of God's word, you should anticipate that these elements will come about from time to time. I think that helps us to understand the importance of having discernment in this modern era, to not let ourselves believe every book that is written in the name of Jesus or every practice that is practiced in the name of Jesus, we should inspect the word of God. It says in Acts chapter 17 that when Paul went to Berea, they were more noble-minded or fair-minded than the citizens of Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures daily to see whether the things that Paul taught were actually so. So looking into God's word, of course, is our perfect standard, the thing that we hold on to to help us discern the truth. 
Now, in verse 22, it says that Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, this is an interesting question that is asked at this moment. Of course, we don't know what the motivation behind this question was. All we can do is observe the timing of the question. Perhaps this disciple noticed that Jesus' message hadn't swept the nation as they had anticipated. You remember at previous moments in Jesus' life and ministry, especially after he fed the 5,000, they had actually wanted to take Jesus by force and to make him king. It appeared that his popularity was all-encompassing. But, you know, as time went on and as Jesus continued to teach the truth and as he opened up his mouth, as, as his word caused division, as this man saw people leaving and departing, perhaps the question was, Lord, is this going to be a small movement? Now, the interesting thing is that Jesus really doesn't answer this man's question. He'll detail a narrow door, but he won't say whether many will go through or few will go through. It's up to mankind to decide if it will be many or if it will be few. If 99% of the population receives, then you might say many. And if 1% receives, you might say few. But this is often, I think, a question that we ask. Lord, will there be only few who are saved. I think in our heart of hearts, people so often want to be universalists. We would like to say, in the end, everyone is saved by God. But that is just not a biblically true statement. What we can say is, in the end, no one will argue with any of God's decisions. We can say, in the end, none of us will have any complaint about what God has chosen to do with each and every individual soul on the face of the earth. But Jesus does not give a universalist answer, nor does he give an annihilationist answer as to, you know, sort of say something along the lines that, yeah, there will be punishment, but it won't last that long, and eventually their soul will be annihilated. No, Jesus describes an eternal place of judgment and suffering. And so we know that we will not argue with God's judgments. We will be satisfied with every decision that he's made. We will worship him in actuality for his decisions. And so Jesus here begins to answer the question. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For I tell you, you will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Jesus here looks at the man and says to the people, he says, you need to strive to enter through the narrow door. In other words, don't ask how many. Instead, ask, am I? Am I in? Am I entering in? This is the opportunity that you have to enter into the kingdom. Receive the Lord. Embrace him. Then he goes on to say, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. And you taught in our streets. But he will say, again, I tell you, I do not know where you come from me. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Now notice that the Lord in this parable will say, 
a couple of times, I do not know where you are from. So what we learn here is that simple ancestry doesn't get you into the kingdom of God, as well as familiarity doesn't get you into the kingdom of God. These people would say, we ate and drank in your presence. Perhaps even some of the Pharisees that had ate with eat, eaten with the Lord. Perhaps even some of the tax collectors and the sinners whom Jesus had hung out with who had not yet come to the place of repenting of their sin, but had persisted in it, perhaps mistaking his love for them and his willingness to be around them as his permission to do what they had been doing. No, Jesus says, that's not going to satisfy anything. The fact that I ate and drank with you. That's not going to satisfy the wrath of God. You need to be declared innocent. I do not know you. I do not know where you come from. It's faith in Christ that gets you in, a knowledge of him. So salvation, we see afresh, comes from knowing Jesus. Now, he goes on to say something that's very horrible in our reading of it, it just is a hard doctrine for us to get around and you know embrace wholeheartedly. It's maybe not one that we love, but it's one that we appreciate. It says that in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. And then Jesus gives hope after talking about hell. He says, and people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. So he announces, listen, there will be some surprises on that day. The Gentiles will be saved, and so many who were invited will reject the invitation Sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will not be there, at least in part. So a powerful statement from the Lord. In that place, he says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus, when describing hell, talked about eternal flames, everlasting darkness, and weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is a serious place. And as I said, no one will argue with the judgments of God. But Jesus announces with a heaviness to these men about that coming day. Enter through the narrow gate. Now, that very same hour, verse 31, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. Now, many people think that these were Pharisees trying to deceive Jesus to get him out of their region. Uh, But it's possible that they were well-intentioned. Not all of the Pharisees were against him. Some became his followers. So perhaps they were warning him because they appreciated him. But he said to them, go and tell that fox to Herod. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. In other words, I've got to rise from the dead. There is nothing that this man can do to me. I have a course in front of me. I'm not going to die at his hand. I'm going to die on the cross. Nevertheless, verse 33, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. So Jesus' heart for the people of Jerusalem, the heart of God for the people of Jerusalem, is communicated here. I I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her brood under her wings, 
You were not willing, Jesus says. Behold, verse 35, your house is forsaken and the temple would be destroyed by the Roman government in 70 AD. And then he said, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, the way that I read the Old Testament and the prophecies that the prophets made about the coming age of glory in Israel, the way I read what Jesus is saying here about the people of Israel, the way I read the epistles, especially places like Romans 9, 10, and 11, where Paul seems to indicate that in the future, the the branch of Israel will be grafted back into the olive tree. He says things like, in this way, all Israel will be saved. And when I read the book of Revelation after the second coming of Christ and read of a 1,000 year period of time where Jesus rules and reigns here on planet earth and the nation of Israel is revived and healthy and strong, what I believe is that Jesus here is saying, you'll see me again. When you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, I think that Jesus is saying, I'm not done with my people Israel. I'm going to deal with the church, with the Gentiles at this time. But when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, I will deal with Israel afresh. And so Jesus gives that beautiful announcement. There's hope even for this group that was rejecting their Messiah. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.